Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is musician, songwriter, community activist, founder of the band Orleans, and former U.S. Congressman John Hall. After forming the group Kangaroo, which shared house band duties with Bruce Springsteen's group The Castiles at Greenwich Village's legendary Café Wa, Hall worked extensively as a sideman. He toured and or recorded as a guitarist with Seals and Crofts, Taj Mahal, Bonnie Raitt, Little Feet, Carly Simon, Jackson Brown, and others, but established himself as a songwriter when he and then-wife Johanna penned Half Moon on Janis Joplin's Pearl album. After John formed the group Orleans, he and Johanna continued to find success as songwriters with the band's hit singles Dance With Me and Still The One. The following decade, John became a chart-topping country songwriter when he co-wrote Steve Warner's number one single, You Can Dream Of Me. He's also known for co-founding the organization Musicians United for Safe Energy with Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, and Graham Nash. John helped organize the legendary 1979 No Nukes concerts at Madison Square Garden, and his song Power became the anthem for the event. In 2006, John was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives representing New York's 19th District. After serving two terms, he returned to making music. John's songs have been covered by Millie Jackson, Shaka Khan, Ricky Skaggs, Taj Mahal, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Levon Helm, Bobby McFerrin, Bonnie Raitt, Chad Atkins, Newgrass Revival, Jose Feliciano, Bill Anderson, The Oak Ridge Boys, Patty Loveless, and more. His most recent solo album is called Reclaiming My Time. We spoke with John in June of 2021 when the album was brand new and when he was working on some Orleans projects that have since become available and can be found at johnhallmusic.com. This episode of Songcraft, like so many others, is brought to you by the fine people at Pearl Snap Studios. You know, we talk about Pearl Snap Studios. Justin and his team, you can find them at pearlsnapstudios.com. Uh, they are a great place to get a demo or even a, a full-on album recorded if that's what you're looking for. But, you know, don't take our word for it. Listen to Stephen, who is a listener to Songcraft. He just sent us this email recently. He says... I want to say thank you for introducing Pearl Snap Studios to me. This past weekend, I came in second place in a national songwriting competition, and if Pearl Snap hadn't have produced the demo, it probably wouldn't have happened. There were 421 submissions, but I believe that Pearl Snap's ability to take a work tape with average guitar playing and below average singing and turn it into a placing song is the stuff of wizards. So, Stephen, thank you so much for writing us to tell us that you uh, heard us talk about Pearl Snap and you had a chance to check them out and were obviously a satisfaction customer. Yeah, I'm not sure how much else we can say that's any better than that. I mean, it's kind of a perfect advertisement from Stephen there. Absolutely. So, uh, Stephen, thank you, my man. And for everyone else listening who wants to have that kind of experience, pearlsnapstudios.com. Part one. 
Paul, before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners we've got a contest going. Uh, we had Dave Alvin on the show recently, and Dave has a new book called New Highway, Selected Lyrics, Poems, Prose, Essays, Eulogies, and Blues. It's a collection of Dave's lyrics and some of his uh, prose and writing that he's done about different artists and uh, about his musical experiences. It's a very cool collection. It really illustrates what a great uh, literary mind Dave Alvin is, uh, in addition to being a fabulous guitar player and uh, we have announced previously but wanted to give a reminder because this is going to be the last call if you are a patreon subscriber meaning if you support songcraft at patreon.com slash songcraft show uh, this is your opportunity to enter send us an email songcraft show at gmail.com let us know that you're a patreon subscriber and that you would like to enter the contest and we will be drawing a name on the very next episode of songcraft to let everyone know who wins a free copy of dave's very cool new book it's free right totally free all they have to do is enter the the thing enter that's, the thing that's it. totally free that's super easy yeah not hard at all okay just want to make sure it sounds like there's a catch but there's not no just free okay no catch you know we do it because we love the book and we want you to have it but we also love for you guys to compete against each other it's just sort of fun for us yeah, like it's a squid gonna, games kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I was going to say Hunger Games, but that's because I'm old and your your <laughs> reference was much more timely. Yeah. So, uh, you know. I, yeah, I, you're more board games. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Candyland kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm shoots and ladders. Um, you know, the, the game that I really want to get into, though, is this conversation with John Hall of Orleans. That's oh, my game today. Game on, my you friend. Know? And uh, if, if you're familiar with the name Orleans, it's probably because of their hits, you know, songs like Still the One or um, Dance With Me, or it could be because of an album cover. There's an album cover uh, to the Waking and Dreaming album. It's it's become somewhat legendary. Yeah, there are articles, you know, I probably unfairly putting it in the category of worst album covers of all time. I, I might call it the most, one of the most remarkable, interesting... Eye-catching. Conversation starting. I, I think that it's probably something you should just go look up. Yeah, Waking and Dreaming is the album uh, cover. We talk about it a little bit in the episode. Um, but yeah, check that out. Um, and, you know, even in just talking about Orleans, I, I catch myself every now and then because I think it's it's Orleans, right? It's not or Orleans. Or, I always assumed it was Orleans. I think that's right. I, but do you say New Orleans when you talk about going to the town? You say New Orleans, right? Correct. Yeah. So maybe it's Orleans, but I, I believe we said Orleans throughout the entire yeah. interview. Yeah. Um, not the only you know, band or musician name that you hear kind of get botched every now and then. No, you know, there's, you know how there used to be these great urban legends, you know, that people right. would tell like the crocodile coming out of the toilet or whatever. <laughs> There'd be these great things. Right. And, and, uh, or, or, you know, uh, the whole thing of like Phil Collins, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. wrote, uh, which song was it? In the air tonight. In the air tonight. Yeah. yeah. And it was like all about like some sort of murder and he busted kids in the his guy. neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, you know, now kids today have the internet so they can debunk these like sort of True. urban myths immediately. When we were growing up, uh, we didn't have the internet. So not only do we believe a lot of urban myths, we also were probably a little shy to say a lot of band names out loud because <laughs> we'd only seen them like in magazines right. or in the record store, like on the record. Like we couldn't look up like, hey, how do you say this? Right. So like, you know, you weren't going to just go out there and say like Husker do because <laughs> you, you didn't know like if right. you're going to get laughed right. at, you know. Yeah. Or Fugazi. Yeah. <laughs> right. Were you going to say Fugazi? Yeah. Like, you, yeah. You hope you got it right. You you better off just not saying anything. Yeah. So I, th there's a great tradition that unfortunately has died with the birth of the Internet of of uh, although I will say uh 
that uh, laziness sometimes wins. Like, oh. I think that the artist's name is her. Uh, it is H period, E period, R period. Like, I think it's going to be I don't her. think it's H-E-R. I think it's her. I haven't looked it up, but I just go with I say her confidently. Right. But I, I hear Bon Iver butchered, you know, pretty yeah. badly as Bon Iver. Or, yeah. You know. I, I, I assumed it was Bon Iver for, like, the first couple albums until yeah. I heard somebody say Bon Iver, and then you make that mental note. You're like, nope, I dodged that bullet. Still not sure how to say Haim or Haim or... Yeah. Haim. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, there's that band Churches, but it's like With C a v H V in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's weird. Now, those are kind of understandably difficult because I think they're kind of meant to be that way a little bit. Right. But when I hear people, even to this day, talk about U2's lead singer Bono. Yeah. I'm kind of like, come on, dude. It's always old people because they're confusing it with Sonny Bono. Right. Because it's spelled <laughs> right. the same way. Right. Can you imagine uh, Gautier coming out in the 90s and us <laughs> not having the internet to go to? Oh, we just would like, just, how are you going to say that? At some point you go, I don't care how good this person's music is. You right. know, like, uh, yeah, maybe uh, M- Michelle Indegio Cello is, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> I'm not uh, sure that you are. It, it should, maybe it's, but like, I just can't put myself out there. This too, right. uh, it's way too much anxiety. Well, and there are some that we think we're doing right and we're sure we're doing right. But I just found out recently that it's not Rihanna, it's Rihanna. Yeah, that one's hard for me to care about, but I see what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> well, try caring about this one. Ariana Grande. Uh-huh. They actually, their family name is Grandy. Okay, that's weird. Ariana that, Grande. Because I feel like that's just flying in the face of, of, uh, of an Starbucks? acceptable... Of Starbucks? <laughs> yeah, Starbucks and the accepted spelling or, or pronunciation of that word. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, so there's there's some others like uh, obviously I think one of the first ones was like Sade when oh, she dude. came out in the 80s. Sade, and, like, it was, yeah, it had to be Sade. Yeah, yeah. So then I was like, well, was the band Slade actually Slade? Like <laughs> I, uh, everything I know to be true is like nobody's turn- listening to both acts. <laughs> like nobody's listening to both Sade and Slade. Well, and apparently I, I learned just a couple years ago that uh, it's Bjork. And it's uh, not Bjork. It's not Bjork. It's, it's not Bjork. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not Bjork. It's not Bjork. It's Bjork. Uh, which is, you know, but even though that I know that now, I feel like it would be uh, very presumptuous to say Bjork, like yeah. with a straight face and conversation. Like I'm sticking with Bjork because I feel like if you're talking to someone and go, Hey, do you like Bjork? They're going to be like, shut up, Jack. Look, her music has always made me feel inadequate anyway. <laughs> and even if pr- pronouncing her name properly, I'm scared to bring her up right. in conversation <laughs> because it's like, Oh, but you only like the famous stuff. So I... <laughs> I'm not well, even going to try to say it. There's a whole Wu-Tang Clan thing that I'm really scared to touch. Like, it looks <laughs> oh, like yeah. GZA, but I think it's Jizza and sure. RZA. And not sure. I'm like, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut because I, I don't, I, I'm going to look dumb. We interviewed Talib Kweli, and I'm not sure if I've ever said it right. And, and like when Jamiroquai came out, it's like, you know, you think you got it. I right. mean, it, it, it pretty much is what it looks like on paper, but you go, you're like, do am I willing to be the first kid at school at the lunch table to just right. like say this out loud. Thank goodness that there are no more lunch tables for us. <laughs> <laughs> we just decided to like have this conversation in front of a, you know, a few of our closest podcast <laughs> listener friends. But uh, yeah, other than that, I feel pretty confident when I talk about bands now. I just try, try to stick to what I know. Yeah. So so if we said any of these names wrong, uh, you know, you can let us know, but uh, don't bother because we're probably not going to change our ways. <laughs> we're, we're too set in our ways from that. So, you know, Sufjan Stevens, Suf Jan, I don't know. Yeah, I like it, his music. Just go I, do your I'm thing. just not going to say it. I'm just, uh, I, and I think it's Sufjan. Yeah. Sufjan. I, I, I don't know what it I'm is. I'm too busy listening to Orleans. <laughs> Part two. John, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you so much, Scott and Paul both. 
Yeah, it's great to, to speak with you. Um, we want to ask you about so many different things. You've had such an, an interesting and wide-ranging career musically and otherwise. Um, but I want to start with your new album, Reclaiming My Time, which is your first solo album since leaving your job as a U.S. congressman in 2011. And we, we definitely want to hear more about, about that job. Um, but on the new album, where did that uh, title come from? Well, on the floor of the House of Representatives, and I would imagine the Senate, although I didn't serve in the Senate, when somebody speaking, uh, the chair or the, the Speaker of the House might allot me two minutes to speak about clean water, safe water to drink. And so I'd be up, you know, at the microphone talking about what I think we need to do for that. And somebody from across the aisle or, or my side of the aisle could say, may I interrupt or may I comment on that? And I would say, I recognize the gentleman from Iowa for... 20 seconds or 30 seconds, and the guy would be speaking. And then when 30 seconds would go by, I'd go, reclaiming my time, Madam Speaker, I'll finish by saying this. Hmm. It's just, it's a way when you're interrupted of getting back into the conversation. And, you know, it's an honor to serve in Congress, and I was happy to be able to do some of the things I did there, but it really did interrupt my songwriting and performing and recording career. So I'm reclaiming that time, and I'm also... Uh, I think, you know, like everybody else, I'm reclaiming the last year and a couple months of the COVID pandemic yeah. when we all, you know, we can't reclaim literally that time, but we can reclaim the the jobs, hopefully, or the, the hugs we didn't get or give to friend with friends and loved ones. And that phrase, reclaiming my time, covers a number of bases. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm curious, just as you approach that album in a way, you know, as you say, it's it's your coming back to the music from a songwriting perspective, um, having been focused on your political career for a time and, and this being your first, you know, solo album back. Uh, was it um, a situation where you had kind of set songwriting aside when you were doing politics and you had to sort of come back and, and get into a new groove and a new discipline of writing? Or had you been continuing to write all along? <laughs> No, I wasn't writing, not songs. I wrote legislation. I wrote speeches. You know, yeah. I wrote I wrote mailers that went out. But when I was in Congress, it was a thirteen-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job. Hmm. If you do it conscientiously, there is no time for reading. Or I mean, yeah, I guess you could make it, or you could not be quite so conscientious. Hmm. And I don't, I can't speak for other members, but I just was working so much that. Uh, no, I didn't write any songs, but I had a lot of pent-up ideas. And mm -hmm. so those songs started to come to the surface of my consciousness, and I started to finish them after that. And um, it was an incredible experience, and it informed... I mean, I've always written topical songs going back to power. From basically the first Orleans album, uh, there was a song called Two-Faced World about, actually, Johanna, my first wife and co-writer. And I wrote that song about hypocrisy for Millie Jackson, who was doing an album with that as a theme, hmm. and uh, it made a reference to, uh, we had a couple songs back then on the first 1973 Orleans album that made references to Richard Nixon and to what was going on then. Yeah. And uh, so there's always been the No Nukes concerts and all that. There's always been an environmental strain running through my songs. So on this record, there's that, and there's a lot of songs about communication being able to speak to each other and, more importantly, maybe listen to each other, whether it's a couple, people in a romantic relationship, or friends, or co-workers, 
or political parties or countries yeah. being able to listen to each other. It's a kind of important thing. Yeah, yeah. Just as a, as an aside, that uh, uh, Millie Jackson cut Two Faced World uh, is great. I, I'm a big fan of hers, and I love that uh, It Hurts So Good album. So I think it's very cool that you uh, you wrote that song. So. I'm assuming that um, all of your speeches to Congress are on the public record, and I'd like to go back and see if any of them accidentally rhyme or have any meter in them, you know, that just kind of <laughs> fell out. But um, I'd like to go back even further than that and, and talk about, you know, you grew up in Elmira, New York. That's just north of the Pennsylvania border. And you're, you're not the only writer to have come from that area. Apparently Mark Twain uh, is also hailed from that area. But I'm curious about what you know, your musical influences were growing up and kind of what was filling your ears and your head as a kid that, that might have sort of propelled you toward your career as an artist and songwriter? My dad gave me a shortwave radio uh, with a tinny, you know, two-inch speaker in it that was in my closet when I was supposed to be doing homework or, or sleeping. I used to creep in there and listen to all these 50,000-watt AM stations, clear channel, nighttime, you know, radio listening. From Chicago, WLS from Chicago, K- KCLW from Detroit, uh, uh, WBC from Boston, WABC from New York, KDKA from Pittsburgh, Wheeling, West Virginia, WWDA. It was incredible. You could get any kind of music on these AM stations, and they would play everything. It wasn't cubbyhole like music is today. Hmm. You know, today you have the country station or the country channel on satellite radio. And then, or you have six country channels. There's traditional country, and then there's easy listening country, and then there's Y2K country, and so on. You know, uh, <laughs> back then you could listen to oh, the Beach Boys, Ray Charles, Aretha, hmm. uh, the Beatles, Patsy Cline, uh, Johnny Cash, the Kinks. <laughs> Pretty much, you know, the Ventures. Yeah. When I was first, you know, starting out playing guitar, all on the same radio station. And they were coming from all these cities that, when I grew up in Elmira, which is a little town, I mean, they called it a city, but honestly, it was more of a town. And there wasn't much live music there, at least not that I could go out and hear because I was underage and uh, just had this radio in my closet. So that was a lot of it, um, hearing a wide variety of music. And also, my grandmother listened to Pete Seeger and the Weavers, and when my dad, my Grandmother lived in Providence, Rhode Island, and when we went on vacation, we would go up there, uh, and uh, I remember on the top floor of our house, there was one of those waist-high for an adult RCA wooden radios with a 15-inch speaker in it, and grill cloth that was embroidered, and the whole thing was finished furniture, mm. but it had this really wonderful radio in it, tube radio, of course, and my dad had hot-wired a turntable into it, so... I could listen to, and my grandmother used to listen to, not just the Weavers with Pete Seeger, so I heard him singing Little Boxes and We Shall Overcome and all these great protest songs, uh, folk songs. But I also heard her Chet Atkins records. 
Hmm. And one of the first songs I ever learned on guitar was Chet Atkins' version of Glowworm. Hmm. Wow. And, you know, it's the kind of thing, I, was, I started listening to this stuff when I was five. Wow. And developed a fascination for that music, too, and that definitely had an influence on my writing. Huh. Well, well, in 1968, uh, you were in a band called Kangaroo that released an album on MGM Records. And uh, I, I think the band members pretty much wrote solo, but you wrote about half the album, including the lead track, Such a Long, Long Time, and the single, I Never Tell Me Twice. People say that I need help, I discuss things with myself, but I album is very much you know of its era with psychedelic influences and and everything but i'd be really curious to know how a kid who's picking up radio stations trying to learn how to play chet atkins songs you know winds up with that first record deal in a band and actually pursuing music as a profession oh i was uh, i was playing with teddy spelios a guitar player in that band in washington dc we, we played in the band uh, at uh place that was called the Peppermint Lounge. It was actually an imitation of the Joey D and the Starlighters Peppermint Lounge in New York City. Hmm. And uh, and a couple of different clubs there. And um, so anyway, we, we went from there to Teddy and me hopping a Greyhound bus to New York and getting a gig at the Cafe Wa in Greenwich Village playing the house band there with a band that turned into Kangaroo uh, after it was briefly Chocolate, Chocolate Snowflake. <laughs> I loved the band names back then. And uh, so Teddy and I and Barbara Keith, who was an acoustic you know, rhythm guitar player and, and finger picker and songwriter, uh, and Norman Smart, who also did a little bit of writing and wound up being the drummer, played drums for us and was the drummer in Mountain, Leslie West's band, Mountain. Um, oh, yeah. And we played at the Cafe Wa and alternated sets actually during that time with uh, a band called the Castiles that was Bruce Springsteen's band out of New Jersey. <laughs> wow. And it was an underage, teeny bopper crowd. It was no alcohol served in that club. So you come in, come in if, you, if you're too young to drink and, you know, pay the couple bucks or whatever it was for admission and get all the potato chips and ice cream you could fill yourself <laughs> up with, right. and, which we did, too. And, um, and we were going on, on like six sets a day or a night us, them, us, them, us, them, all day into the night. And then, you know, each guy in the band, in each band, got six bucks a night. And uh, it was a lot of money back then. <laughs> right. Uh, and it was a way to learn how to play, how to write, how to play, how to get up on stage and put a set together. Sure. Now, and, and I understand that you guys, as Kangaroo, you guys had some, some pretty amazing opening slots. Looking back, a couple bands that you opened for that are kind of uh, Hall of Fame level bands. <laughs> they are. We are not the tour that we got. Our managers, if you can call them that, and the record company, which was MGM, right. put together this tour that was uh, uh, from the Cafe Wa to the MGM Records Convention in Las Vegas. 
and then to the Singer Bowl at the World's Fairgrounds in New York, where we opened for the Who and the Doors, and then back to the Cafe Y. That was our <laughs> grand tour. And, and uh, I've just recently seen some footage on YouTube that somebody shot of the crowd going nuts when Jim Morrison was uh, disrobing on stage, and, <laughs> uh, and be, I think being kicked off the stage by the police back then, it was, you know, he was to push it as far as he could until they shut the concert down. Right. Uh, but there was a young lady who, <laughs> we were backstage having done our set already, and and who in the doors were, I guess the doors were performing. And uh, and this young lady got carried back, having passed out, and she went to the medical part of the tent so that uh, they could give her smelling salts and bring her back to consciousness. And years later, uh, when I was signed, Johanna and I were signed as songwriters, Albert Grossman's publishing company, uh, he had a publicist who was talking with me one time about the good old days. You know, this was probably in the, you know, mid-70s. We were talking about the good old days. And I mentioned something about that show, and she said, oh, I was there, I passed out, they had to carry me backstage. <laughs> and I said, that's, you were the one on that stretcher. <laughs> That's funny. So you never, you never know. Right. <laughs> there are a lot of intersections. There's a lot of serendipity going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned Johanna, and there are two songs on your new album, Lessons and Now More Than Ever, that you guys uh, wrote together. I think, uh, if I understand correctly, the first time that you had collaborated in like well over two decades. But I'd like to, to kind of go back to the beginning when you guys first met and, and started writing together. You, you came out of the gate you know, pretty early on with Half Moon on Janis Joplin's Pearl album, which is a pretty cool cut to get. Talk a little bit about how you and Johanna first began writing together and what your writing collaboration was like in terms of kind of who brought what to the table and, and why it worked so well. Um, well, I had been writing songs by myself, as you know, uh, lyrics and music. And um, although in Kangaroo, a couple of the other guys uh Don Haney and Ted Filios contributed to some of those songs that are credited just to me, um, which I could never get the record company to uh, straighten out on the credits. Hmm. It's also uh, that you know I could never get them to send us a statement ever since their record was cut <laughs> either. So uh, there might be some money somewhere from it. But uh, right. but anyway, so Johan and I were living together in an apartment on the Upper East on the. Lower East Side of Manhattan, and she was writing for the Village Voice, doing music reviews, and she wrote a favorable review of Janis Joplin's Cosmic Blues album, which was the album after Big Brother and the Holding Company, when a lot of the other critics were saying, you know, they didn't like it because it had horns, and it wasn't that Northern California, my brothers in the commune and me, kind of record, and they, you know, she got a lot, got panned a lot on that record. Mm. Johanna wrote a good review of Janice. And Janice asked Albert Grossman's publisher, the same woman who passed out listening to the doors <laughs> at the Singer Bowl that night, right. uh, was doing publicity. And um, and so Janice asked her if uh, she could get interviewed with Johanna Shear at the time. And so uh, they arranged with Johanna to meet for her to meet Janice at a Greek restaurant on the west side of the village. And I was in the apartment just playing guitar or doing something, I forget exactly what, when the door opened, and then comes Johanna with Janice Chaplin behind her. 
And my first thought was, I wish I'd emptied the cat box. And, <laughs> you know, we just, we wound up, we wound up sitting around singing. It was before Christmas, we were doing blues versions of Christmas carols. I remember A Little Town of Bethlehem and a shuffled blues version. <laughs> and Janice drank our cookie sherry because it was the only alcohol we had in the department. <laughs> and uh, I played her a couple songs and she said, you know, I like the music, but the lyrics sound like it's a young man talking. I said, well, I am a young man. So Janice turned to Joanne and said, you're a woman, you're a writer. Why don't you two write me a song? Wow. So we did. Uh, Johanna wrote the lyric to Half Moon and handed it to me, and I wrote the music to it, and we taught it to her and her band, and she loved it and recorded it. And it was really like having St. Janice or, you know, our patron saint dub us songwriters, you know, mm. poof, you're a songwriter. Yeah. Wow. Because uh, she passed away shortly after that, as you know, and, you know, thank God she got to record the vocal on it. Yeah, that's amazing. And, um, it, you know, it's very sad that she died, but it, but like any posthumous record, uh, whether it's Whitney Houston or Janice or, you know, anybody who's got a new album in the can and then dies, that record goes to number one. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we got to introduce the songwriters. like bowling a strike your first time bowling and then you have to roll some gutter balls before you figure out how to get the ball back on the alley and back in the strike zone yeah so but it but it paid for us the royalties in that paid for us to learn songwriting mm. wow. and uh we so we just kept writing in the millie jackson there was a woman that albert grossman who was the manager really the reason that i and a lot of other people wound up in woodstock uh, Woodstock, New York area, was because Albert Grossman had moved there and all of his acts like Bob Dylan and the band and Paul Butterfield Blues Band and Jeff and Maria Moldauer and, and uh, you know, all these Todd Rundgren, all these fabulous writers, players and singers had moved to Woodstock because it was Albert's little bailiwick. So we wound up there and he hired a publishing, a song plugger for his publishing company wanted us to call her in the middle of the night if if that's when it happened whenever we wanted a song she wanted us to call Linda Wortman was her name it is still her name um, at two in the morning it didn't matter when you finish the song call me and sing it to me on the phone and I would do that and then she would as soon as I finished the song she would read out the list of the people she wanted to send the song to wow. and she got Millie Jackson she was the one that told us about Millie doing a album about hypocrisy and she was the one who told us the times were looking for kind of a doo-wop song and we wrote miss grace for them and she got it to them and got them to record it it was just an extraordinary uh uh situation for new songwriters yeah wow and i went there writing writing music for broadway and off-broadway shows and uh and as uh i got more and more into performing it you know went through a period of being a sideman guitar player with Susan Cross and Taj Mahal and Darren Dalton and so on, and then wound up uh, starting the band that became Orleans. 
and, you know, wanting to do shows of original material. So writing more and more for, for us, for, for me and for the, for the band Orleans. And, uh, and that really kicked it into another gear. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking as I listen that so many writers would just sort of look at having had this Janis Joplin song on a huge record and the, you know, Millie Jackson and all these different cuts as, as kind of, you know, something to hang their hat on career-wise. But you were about to step into a, even a much bigger season. And I'm talking, of course, about, you know, the band Orleans. Uh, I'd love to know how that band came together. Well, the band got together because after I came back from a Karen Dalton tour opening to Santana in Europe, um, one where she got bounced off the tour because she refused to play in Montreux, Switzerland the 12th time or 13th time she did not get a sound check um, <laughs> and I wound up doing a show because the remote promoter said somebody's got to play and uh, because there were a lot of Santana and Buddy Miles fans there who and, and Santana and Buddy were not ready to play yet so right. so I went out and did about a half dozen songs with Bill Keith the uh the late great banjo and steel player uh, playing bass, actually, with me and uh, uh, Karen's uh, friend Danny Hankin from Nebraska, I think it was, where Karen was from, playing uh, uh, acoustic rhythm guitar. Uh, and I sang and played Stratocaster through a teeny amp uh, on some Jimmy Reed songs and Ray Charles songs and, and uh, you know, different R&B and blues things. And then finished up with Don't Bogart That Joint, which Lil George had written for the Paternity Man, and, and uh, Little Feet, of course, later did it. Right. Uh, it had been, that song, I forgot, had been in the movie Easy Rider. Hmm. So the European, the Swiss audience at Montreux, had all heard that song yeah. and got up and sang and waved their lighters and their matches back and forth. And, <laughs> and I went back down in the uh, dressing room and thought, wow, I got away with that. And... And the promoter came back and said, you have to do an encore. And I went back up, and the crowd was stamping and clapping. And, and I thought, well, I should really start my own band. Hmm. I don't have to be a sideman, necessarily. And right. especially since Karen, you know, we were dropped from the tour after that. No headliner like Santana wants to have an opening act that won't go on. So <laughs> right. so we wound up coming back to Woodstock, and I, I uh, asked uh, Wells Kelly to join me in December of... Uh, 1971, and then Larry Hoppin came down from Ithaca and joined us, me and Wells, in January 72. We uh, rehearsed in Johannes My Basement in Saugerties, right just to the east of Woodstock, and did our first gig using the name Orleans um, that month. And the reason why we called it Orleans was we were doing a lot of Alan Toussaint meters, you know, Neville Brothers kind of music. Right. Uh, and among other, you know, reggae stuff and R&B stuff, we had not yet gotten to the, the acoustic harmony stuff like Dance With Me. But, yeah. but uh, so that was actually in this January to be 50 years. And we are now working on not just an Orleans Christmas record, our first, but also our 50th anniversary album that will be out next January. Oh, wow. That's so cool. uh, it's a big year coming up for us. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, There's going to be some new Orleans. <laughs> it will be, yeah. <laughs> now, um, you know, you guys put out a couple of records for ABC, but um, as Paul mentioned, it, it was really Dance With Me that, that put you on the map with that first big top 10 single. Tell us a bit about writing that song. 
I was uh, sitting in our living room in uh, in Woodstock. Uh, I think it was a Sunday morning playing acoustic guitar, and I just came across that line, the guitar figure that opens the song, and it's also the chorus. But da 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 da, and I was just started strumming it on the guitar, and Johanna was making coffee in the kitchen, and said, "Sounds like dance with me," and I said. Can we think of something more original? <laughs> no, it really sounds like dance with me. And so we wound up that morning, we wrote the first chorus to it, and then hit a writer's block. And uh, Larry heard the song. I played him at the beginning of it. He said, you better finish that. Hmm. It sounds like a hit song. So two months later, we're driving back from Ithaca, New York, to Woodstock again, and I'm driving. Johanna's in the passenger seat. Suddenly says, Pick the beat up and kick your feet up. And started scribbling on an envelope, and by the time we got home, the, the song was written. Wow. Dance with me, I want to be a partner, can't you see? The music is just starting, night is calling, and I am falling. Dance with me, fantasy. You know, this is a song that I'm really proud of for a lot of reasons, partly because, you know, it did, it just did so well, period, and it put Orleans on the map for people who had not heard the, the first album or, or the second album, um, but also be, because instrumentally it's something that has been recorded by Earl Clue, by Chad Atkins, hmm. closing that circle for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, by Steve Warner, uh, Tommy Emmanuel, uh, all these guitar players. Uh, Bobby McFerrin did it as a scat singing oh. uh, kind of jazz funk version. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been cut in other languages. It's uh, it's really crossed over maybe more even than Still the One has. Because, I think because the version we did of Still the One was was definitive enough that maybe fewer people want to record. Mm. That's been recorded by a couple of bands. I think the Oak Ridge Boys did it and Bill Anderson. You know, country stars like that. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, thank God those both those songs still get played a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the story of kind of how that came together, it seems like there are two really necessary components in writing a song. It's someone to come up with the idea, and then someone to say, hey, that's good. Uh, you need to finish that. You know, just that, that sort of second pair of ears that identifies you got a hit on your hands here. Right. Or, or that it's music sometimes, or, or lyrics first sometimes. Yeah. And uh, Johanna came up with the, with the lyrics for Still the One, just like she did with Half Moon. And a friend of ours was breaking up and divorcing her husband and asked Johanna if they could write a song about people staying together because there were so many songs out there about people breaking up. And um, so Johanna wrote that on the back of an envelope again and handed it to me uh, and I said, do you think you can do anything with this? I wrote the music really fast, 10, 15 minutes.
you know, it was obviously just a gift. I, I, you know, I felt like sometimes you labor over songs, come, sometimes they come quickly. But that song was just came really quickly and, and was uh, sort of preordained. Yeah. And it was perfect for Orleans. So we definitely, definitely knew it. We, you know, Larry sang it, Larry Hoffman, and, and uh, we all sang harmony on it. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the definitive Orleans thing with the double lead guitars and big harmonies. I got to sing, yours do the one, <laughs> my best bass voice. <laughs> nice. So um, people ask us, you know, what, why'd you do that naked album cover <laughs> for Waking and Dreaming, you know? Right. And, and back then it was so racy. I mean, we had a jean, we had jeans on it. Was you know, the last two frames of a two-hour photo session. The photographer said, "Hey, why don't you all take your shirts off?" And that wound up, of course, being the record company's choice for the cover. <laughs> right. And uh, but Kmart wouldn't carry it unless they airbrushed the jeans back in because the picture had been cropped, so you couldn't see the tops of our oh, wow. blue jeans. <laughs> and it was just, you know, back then that was really racy. By today's standards, just nothing. Right. But right. Anyway, <laughs> times change. You're like, thanks. I got to answer questions about that for the rest of my life now. <laughs> <laughs> and then there have been many other records besides that, or Reach a Little Bit Higher, which been recorded by dozens of gospel groups, and Newgrass Revival did a version of it with uh, John Cowan singing lead and playing bass, and Bela Fleck playing banjo, and Pat Flynn on guitar. Yeah. Pat and. Uh, Sam Bush, it's been, uh, you know, there have been songs that came out of the records, like Linda Ronstadt heard, you know, Give One Heart on the Orleans uh, third album, the Let's Be Music album, mm -hmm. and recorded it on her Hasten Down the Wind album. So when you start having records that are popular, you know, when we started having them as Orleans, more and more artists heard these songs and picked songs up of the albums to re-record. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting that um, once you kind of left the band, it, it's difficult to establish yourself, I think, in a band situation and then leave the band and kind of establish yourself, you know, as a, as a solo act or, or with another band or whatever. But as we see you kind of moving out of that Orleans period, you, you put out the self-titled John Hall on Asylum in 1978. And then I think a lot of people... Um, know you from the whole No Nukes thing um, because you did Plutonium is Forever at the concert. Your song Power was performed by the Doobie Brothers and yourself and kind of an all-star cast. And, you know, a lot of people know that No Nukes um, film and, and album and that series of concerts is kind of this pivotal moment. And uh, talk a bit about that sort of transition, not only from band to solo artist, but also to really uh, social engagement as a solo artist and finding your voice in that respect apart from the band. Thanks. Yeah, you know, it was a continu continuation for me of uh, a thread that ran through the Orleans records as well. Um, there was a song on the Orleans Left Every Music album called Business As Usual. Uh, and the chorus was, you sit around and talk about it with your friends. And it's business as usual, watching as the world ends. Mm. And it was a song about famine. It was back during the Biafra famine. I don't know if anybody even remembers that now. When it's, you know, there have been so many crises around the world. Where, mm. And that's the kind of thing I've always written about. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I wrote the song Power. 
and put out an album that came out in March of 1979, and the album title was Power. That right. came after the John Hall Asylum Records uh, album that was my first after leaving Orleans in 78. And, and the Power album, James Taylor and Carly Simon sang harmony on the song Power With Me. And uh, that was the, the, the solo album that I put out that spring. And it was also the month that Three Mile Island melted down or partially melted down. And so my Power album came out and a couple of weeks later, there's this nuclear accident, and um, the record stores and distributors sold out of the Power album because of the song Power hmm. in, in a couple of weeks, and they couldn't get more because I think there was a Springsteen record and a, you know, some other, you know, Elton John record or something. They were being pressed at the same time, and the, you know, Columbia, CBS. The, the label back then, by the way, was Maurice White's Earth, Wind, and Fire's label called American Record Company, ARC, which was a, was a custom label distributed by Columbia. So it had to be the Columbia Record Pressers. And they were backed up with these other albums, so uh, so there was a hold-up getting the album back in the stores again. But in the meanwhile, I had been doing a show uh, for the Karen Silkwood Fund, and if you haven't seen the movie Silkwood or read about Karen Silkwood to find out who she is, um, you know, please do. Yeah. Bonnie Raitt, Jackson Brown, and I, and James, I believe, and, you know, some other, Jesse Cohen Young, I think, other artists had done this benefit at the Palladium in New York for the Sharon Silkwood Fund. And it was sold out show and raised a bunch of money for them. And afterwards, we were saying, what do we do now? And somebody, I think it was I, who said, uh, let's go to Madison Square Garden and call everybody we know and put on a really big show. But I know how we'll save the school. Let's put on a show. <laughs> so, um, so we did, and we wound up starting with one show. And Jackson called Bruce and Tom Petty and got them to come and perform. And, you know, everybody called somebody. I think my job was trying to contact Chaka Khan and uh, Peter Tosh, mm-hmm. you know, which I did. And, uh, you know, there were all different kinds of artists on the, on the show. That was, you know, the Doobies were kind of like the house band, although... You know, Coaches, Silson, Nash, and Jackson, and Bonnie had their own bands there. But um, all kinds of folks showed up. Paul Simon got up and sang a song just with him and a guitar mm-hmm. without being announced. Wow. And um, David Bowie was hanging out backstage. Graham and I tried to talk him into uh, performing. We said, we know all your songs. It's like the best band. The whole <laughs> section from L.A. were there, you know, worked with, with James and uh, many other wonderful artists. And, we said, we got the best players, come on out. <laughs> but we couldn't talk them into it. But it was a remarkable event over the course of five days and a, uh, and a rally on the fifth day at Battery Park with a recorded million people. And, and that's in the No Nukes movie uh, where I sing uh, the song Power. Just give me the Oh, yeah. 
them from the dark. After I get off the stage, Crosby Sills and Nash sing to teach her children. Mm-hmm. And I had my daughter in a snuggly on my chest, sleeping, uh, standing in the wings while they were saying teach your children. Wow. It was uh, <laughs> it was just an unbelievable event. And fortunately captured on a triple album, double CD, and a Warner Brothers movie. So uh, it's there for anybody who wants to see it or listen to it. Wow. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned, uh, we were talking about Still the One, some of the, the country covers that, you know, the Oak Ridge Boys and Bill Anderson, but that's not even close to your only uh, association with country music. Um, you know, you had songs by Newgrass Revival and Ricky Skaggs, Patty Loveless, and, and one that really sticks out is Steve Warner's number one country hit, You Can Dream of Me, in 1985. So if you want someone to feel you I'd love to know about how that song came about and sort of what you found in Nashville as a as a songwriting destination and community that, that meant something to you. Well, first of all, when you get up here, I've flown all over the country and you know, parts of the world I've flown to, and you get off the, the plane in Nashville, it says, Welcome to Music City. <laughs> and I'm used to, you know, the Lower East Side where they say, well, so what's your job? And you're a musician. And they go, next. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like if you want to rent an apartment, you better have a real job. uh, (laughs) But in Nashville, it's like, okay, that's a real job. We like you. Come on in. (laughs) And uh, even more so, you know, I mean, of course, nowadays, everybody knows that. But but, uh, people approach writing. The same way, but also more like a job, more like a business. And uh, and it was something that helped me learn to write on demand. Uh, it was kind of anathema to a lot of my Woodstock friends who think that you get high enough and lightning will strike. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stay up all night and maybe uh, you'll have an idea. Yeah. But, uh, but I've learned uh, partly from writing for Broadway and off-Broadway, but also largely from writing in Nashville, that if you show up with the guitar in your hand or the piano under your fingers, and practice your craft, that the art will show up more often. That the inspiration will show up more often. Yeah. And so that's what people do there, and that's what I've learned to do. With Steve Warner, and you can dream of me, I had a date to write with Steve. He had already recorded and played with Chet Atkins already, uh, actually danced with me, and sales. So, you know, I went to the Y to play racquetball or something, and, you know, that morning and then drive to the seats and in the shower at the Y, I had this idea about, you know, the course. If you want someone to feel your waking hours, uh, with a love that is real, babe, still not free. If you think you can call for a telephone call and some flowers, if you're dreaming of someone, you can dream of me. Yeah, I just had it in my head. I did not want to stop singing it to myself until I could write it down. <laughs> and I got showered and then back dried off and then my clothes went out to the car and wrote it. I always try to carry a notepad or something I can write on in the right front seat of my car. And I wrote it down and then drove out to Steve, still singing it to myself. 
and walked in and sang it to him. And he went, great. Here's an idea for a verse, you know. And we just took off from there. Wow. And Steve's a great writer and a great guitar player, really fun to play and to write with. But we finished that song, you know, probably in an hour from when I showed up with the chorus. And um, he made a great record of it. And uh, and the guys who played on it did a great job. And it was, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was it was not the first record. I think Ricky Skaggs had recorded, uh, or the Oaks had recorded a couple songs Johanna and I wrote before that. But uh, writing with Steve or any artist from Nashville has always been fun and uh, productive to some extent. Yeah. Those, those one-hour songs, that, that's great payback for all the hours you put in on songs that you either don't get anywhere or it takes you days to write yeah, it. Yeah, you, know. you know, there's a thing in Nashville which, you know, some people scoff at, which is like, Oh, I love writing with Sharon Vaughn, which my, my new album, the very first song, uh, I think of you, I wrote with Sharon. And, but I wrote, wrote that song. We made a date to write at 10 in the morning, sat at the kitchen table and, and wrote that song. And we were done by lunchtime. And there's a little joke in Nashville going around about, oh, I, I love writing with him or her because we can go out for lunch. You know, and that's, <laughs> there is that. Right. If, you cl- if you really click and the song happens, uh, quickly, then you know, it turns into a social hour. Yeah. So it's not always that way, and doesn't have to be that way. But anyway, that's the, yeah. you know, Sharon was really fun to write, and that song, I chose it to open my reclaiming my time album because it just seems like the best foot in the door first. It's just mm-hmm. uh, if I want somebody to hear something that makes them want to listen to more, I think uh, think of you is it's an up tune. It's one of my better melodies, in my humble opinion and wonderful lyrics from Sharon. And in my heart I hear you sing And I will give in to my wild imaginings Though the ocean's miles away I can From the early 1990s to the mid-2000s, you released a, a handful of solo albums, but also were getting increasingly involved in civic life and, and politics until uh, you ran for Congress, representing New York's 19th district, and defeated a six-term Republican incumbent in a district that hadn't elected a Democrat in 40 years, which you pulled off as a progressive. Um, and you know, here you are suddenly uh, a U.S. congressman, which is very different than uh, traveling the world, playing guitar and and writing songs. Um, I'm curious, during your time in Congress, if there was any legislation that came up regarding songwriters' rights or royalties or, or, you know, anything involving music um, that you were able to kind of bring your unique perspective to as, you know, a, a professional musician. Yes, I, I could argue for it. There was a bill that uh, was passed in terms of uh, you know copyright protection uh, that I actually recused myself. I voted present. It was the only time in four years in Congress that I did not vote yes or no. I just voted present because it was a conflict of interest to me to pass a bill that might make me more money. Hmm. Huh. And so uh, 
I was riding up in the elevator with a bunch of members from both sides of the aisle, and Daryl Issa is a Republican from California, was riding up with me, and, and he said, why did you vote present on that bill? And, uh, and I said, well, because it was a conflict of interest, so, you know, I didn't want to vote to make myself more money. And he said, oh, you could have done that. It would have been fine. It's only if it would be exclusively you that made more money that it would be a conflict of interest. Uh-huh. I said, well, Daryl, that's because I actually care about the appearance of a conflict of interest. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, <laughs> he's the guy that had made up, uh, he, did, he actually patented the Viper Carillon, and it's his voice that says, step away from the vehicle. Step away from the vehicle. Warning, <laughs> really? warning. <laughs> it's his voice, and he gets royalties on. Wow. Yeah. So he should know about conflicts of interest. But anyway, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's all okay. I just, uh, you know, I had been in, in politics on the local level with the school board and with, you know, a couple times I was elected to the Board of Education, once to county legislature before I ran for Congress. And uh, so I knew a little bit about compromise and negotiations and, and uh, nothing that totally prepared me for federal office. But, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, there were some things that happened that I'm really proud of, not what I thought, really. I did some, you know, good things on the environment and I was kind of ran as the environmental candidate and the anti-war candidate and uh, wound up becoming most effective in terms of veterans affairs and veterans disability pay in particular. Hmm. Um, uh, speaker, without those four years was Nancy Pelosi, her first time around as speaker, and she appointed me to chair the subcommittee on veterans disabilities. And uh, I was the prime author of and got passed out of my subcommittee and through the full Veterans Affairs Committee, a bill called the uh, Claims Modernization Act of 2008, which passed the House and the Senate unanimously, every Republican and every Democrat in the House and the Senate voted yes. And uh, President George W. Bush signed it into law and in a signing statement called it good government. And I was shocked as much as anybody, I guess, because it really just goes to show there is common ground. Mm. If one looks hard enough for it, yeah. uh, you can find it. And uh, Well, there was then, anyway. You know, that bill did a lot of really, really good things. <laughs> if somebody went to Iraq or Afghanistan, sane, and came back with PTSD, or if they went with four limbs and came back with three, or any kind of that debilitating 100% disability-type injury, from the day they are presented by their doctor, by their lawyer, by their family, or by themselves to the VA, they're guaranteed 100% disability starting that day. Hmm. No six-month wait while you round up a letter from your commander yeah. or your yeah. buddies in your unit. It just was to allow veterans to sidestep what at the time was a six-month wait hmm. to start getting disability pay. And we had at the time a epidemic of suicide, bankruptcy, divorce, and homelessness among vets. It's still bad, but not as bad as it was during those peak years of the Iraq War and, and the Afghan War. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, that's probably the most important thing I did in Congress. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's kind of this thread that I can trace through your songwriting, through your time in Congress all the way to the new album, which is sort of a a sense of compassion and um, a sense of caring, whether that be on a large level with, you know, 
um, the environment or nuclear power or whether it be on more of a, a personal level with, hey, here, here's this vet who served our country and came back and he deserves, you know, to get the, the care that he needs. And even, you know, on a song like Alone Too Long on your new album, which I understand was just a very kind of caring and personal response um, to a friend. Um, so I'd like to, to hear a little bit about that song, which is the lead single. Um, and, you know, in a larger sense, just how you have tried to say something meaningful and bring that humanity and that sense of care through your songwriting, you know, all the way from, from the beginning to now. Well, thanks. Uh, I, uh, I've always tried to write about things that are important to me that I, that I feel strongly about. So sometimes that's, Boy, I really love you, <laughs> and sometimes it's, I'm really missing you. Yeah. Or in the case of, you know, Long Too Long, it was my buddy who lost his wife to cancer, and, you know, eight months later, uh, I'd been there, for, you know, through the visitation and the funeral, and we started writing songs. This is John Paul Daniel, co-writer for about half the album with me. Um, we started writing songs together the day after his wife's funeral, and, uh, and the third song, Mystic Blue, we wrote together that night. But Long Too Long, you know, he had been in grief quite a while and I think eight months after his wife passed he asked another friend if it was okay to start dating yet and the, the friend said don't stay alone too long you might start to like it and I heard that and said there's a song that's got to be a song and uh, John Paul couldn't really help me with it at the time because it was too close to home and I wound up finishing lyric to it with uh, Chad Richards wonderful writer from Woodstock who I've written a number of songs on this record and on different solo records and Orleans records with. And uh, so so uh, that song started out to be about somebody who was wounded either by that kind of grief or by losing or by being rejected. You know, by the first verses, I say, you've been wounded. Your true love came with pain and heartache included. You asked for my advice now I'll provide it. Don't stay alone too long. You might start to like it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Chad Richards, you know, finished the rest of those verses. And, uh, and it became something about really the pandemic. We started it right before the lockdown. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it was January or February of 2020. And, and so it went on to look at yourself another evening with Netflix. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how many of us haven't looked at that microwave dinner or that, or that, movie on you know on netflix and going boy i'm really a sad case you know (laughs) uh it was partly about all of us Hmm. yeah you asked for my advice I just always felt strongly about the environment, and my little brother was a priest. My mom had a master's in divinity, and they both taught me, and my upbringing taught me to care. You know, we should be good stewards of this earth and of all the, you know, the creatures on it, right, and right. take good care of the of this planet. And um, and that's something I feel strongly enough about to write a lot about. Right. They're all about something. They're all topical songs when you get back. You know. 
to reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, you said something a moment ago about uh, alone too long that you said, you know, I, I think it was a little bit about all of us. And hmm. in, in, in some ways, I mean, that's what a good songwriter is able to do is to take a topic, whether it's very personal or universal and, and make it connect with people so that we all feel, you know, like it's a little bit about, uh, all of us. So we want to encourage our listeners to check out the new album, Reclaiming My Time. And John, uh, we thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. It's been great to just, uh, you know, we've, we've only scratched the surface of your amazing career, but, uh, it's been very cool to, to get a little bit of insight into, um, your uh, musical career and your life as a songwriter and artist, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you, Scott, and thank you, Paul. And uh, I would just add that if anybody wants to know more about what I'm doing uh, and where I'm performing or where Orleans is performing, uh, johnhallmusic.com. It's been really great, and I'm looking forward to hopefully talking to you again. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.